So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Happy National Speech Pathology Day, Miss Erin. How did you spend your day, love? Being a speech pathologist. Ah, yes. I donated a significant amount of blood for a thyroid tune-up or a checkup. Happy Speech Pathology Day. Middle age sucks. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, make sure that your thyroid is also checked for a tune-up periodically. We have a lot of ground to cover today on a kind of heavy topic on progressive dysphagia for progressive disorders. And And y'all, if you have not yet had that moment in your life or in your professional career where you are called to work with a little one, where your plan of care most likely will not be long-term process improvement, but maintenance followed by plateaus, some breakthroughs followed by regressions, then this is why we're doing this, because we want to share the tools to better equip y'all. So basically, you learn from our gracious mistakes. How about that? <laughs> Not all mistakes, but some mistakes. Joy. Yes, but there's always joy in the learning process. So um, hip, hip, hooray. Today, we are going to cover Rett syndrome and Lesch-Nyhand syndrome, as well as infantile spasms, also known as West syndrome, which typically evolves into Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So that's like a three-in-one combo. But where do you want to start? 
You want to start with Rett's, Rett syndrome? Sure, because my caseload is is filling up with little ones with Rett syndrome. This topic came from a Instagram friend. I've met her once, but Delaney, we were talking about a patient that she has, and she was like, have y'all talked about progressive disorders? And I was like, no, but we really should because it's definitely... And like you said, if you haven't had a little one on your caseload that has a progressive disorder, it's challenging to change your mindset to not be constantly looking for progress because in that case, that's not your job. And you're advocating for very different things. And I've added a lot of new kiddos on my caseload recently. And a lot of them have a good amount, have some devastating diagnoses. And so it's hard because we're taught to achieve and, and progress and grow. And when you have patients that aren't doing that quickly or aren't, are more maintaining, it's, you have to remind yourself that like, that's not always the goal and there's different things you're going to have to advocate for. So, so that's, I think, another mindset that we're just, we're going to take today when we talk about these diagnoses and these patients. And we don't have time to cover all of that in grad school. I just spent two hours doing curriculum planning for the next five semesters to add books, like holistic functional books in, like the books that you've recommended, actually, The Whole Brain Child, The Power of Play. So thank you for the recommendation. So I've worked those in. And while I'm working them in, and we were going into this tonight, I was like, there's no way that you can finish grad school and even scratch the surface on the potential etiologies that you're going to come into contact with. Before we get deep, as you're talking with your hands today, I had a patient today that like, I was explaining something to mom and I was talking with my hands and she's sitting on the table and she's looking at me and she's like, imitating everything that I'm doing. And I'm like, I know you're not making fun of me, but it kind of seems like you are, but you're doing great gross motor and fine motor imitation. So that's wonderful. But we learn about it with adults. Yes. It's just a very different and specifically like Rett syndrome. I am have recently become very passionate about, and I have a patient that I was the first one to notice these signs of Rett syndrome. It's an even different walk. We're used to the walk of a diagnosis of autism or some of our other developmental diagnoses, neurodevelopmental disorders. But when you are then part of a family's journey of a diagnosis of a progressive disorder, that's very different because all of it is hard, but it's just not something that you expect to be a part of. Start with the part where you picked up the signs and symptoms of that little girl. That'd be great to walk in of this is what we saw and this is what made me think this. And this little girl, even in talking to the geneticist after, because we're lucky enough to have a Rett syndrome clinic at the Shriners Hospital here. So that equates to really phenomenal interdisciplinary care with a child that has a Rett syndrome diagnosis and patients that come here for that. And so when in talking to the geneticist, he was like, how was this missed? Like, how were there physicians that missed this? How was there therapists that missed this? And I think when I was talking to someone about it with other physicians, for example, like I see autism every day. Granted, autism looks different in every child, but I think the signs that I was seeing, I knew they weren't autism. So she came in over a year old, was only drinking milk, was walking, but gait was very... Like we ran into walls, we were constantly falling down. This wasn't the, another therapist saw her for an eval and there wasn't as much mouthing, but when I saw her, she was constantly mouthing her hands. We just very dysregulated. There wasn't much and mom couldn't even really say what calmed her or what made her feel much more regulated. A lot of signs of very significant reflux, like emesis with every bottle, constant arching, constant discomfort, refusal of solids, 
We were maybe having some vocalizations, not babbling, but vocalizing when we were upset, no words at this point. We hadn't seen any other specialists other than our pediatrician, which is alarming. Something in my gut was just like, this isn't right. And I don't know what, where I pulled Rett syndrome from, but this just seemed like textbook Rett syndrome to me. So we got her to the geneticist and got her to where she needed to be. But I think it was because of the cases that I had to compare to that this seemed more apparent, whether it was autism or other genetic syndromes that I work with. Because, I mean, even the geneticist said like to one of the other therapists who I work with collaboratively, like how did this therapist know? And she said, she's like, she just works with a lot of medically complex patients. And so when you know what it's not, it can lead you to what it is. And there was regression, which you do see in autism, but there was, we were eating more, we were saying a couple words, and then we regressed very significantly. And so that was, that was the other huge factor that I noticed at least. And we'll get to the official Rett syndrome diagnosis on the page, but here's what has always been a red flag for me. It is atypical for a female to have an autism spectrum diagnosis. Yes, especially early. Yeah, When you pick up a little one that has an ASD diagnosis and she's female and she's young and she has very distinctive, repetitive hand gestures. Her grasp was so weak. It's our hands are constantly moving, but it's not purposeful. It's like, it's different. It looks almost like chorea or like an athetoid-like movement to borrow language from a CP just to characterize the motion. But here's the thing. For me, it's like the sound of laryngomalacia. Once you hear laryngomalacia once, it is stuck in your auditory memory, and this is stuck in my visual memory. And y'all, the regression, it's akin to autism, but then it's very distinct as... For me personally, it included gross motor, fine motor, neurocog. It is full body regression. And that was the piece that stands out. All right. So break it down for the definition for us, ma'am. From rare diseases, which is one of our favorite resources, Rett syndrome is a progressive neurodevelopmental disorder that almost exclusively affects females. In rare cases with males, usually they're typically developing for about 7 to 18 months after birth, and then they start to lose these previously acquired skills, such as the purposeful hand movements and communication. So like, and talking to a physician, I think it was one of the geneticists, he's like, I didn't realize how vital like eye gaze devices and communication devices can be for these patients because it it gives them some sense of autonomy. Other abnormalities can be impaired control of voluntary movements, the hand clapping. Some can have microcephaly, and they're often developed, they call them autistic-like behaviors, breathing irregularities, feeding and swallowing difficulties, and seizures. So you know, communication, feeding and swallowing. I have another little one that has, and sometimes it's before a meal and trying to decipher if that's coming from like an anxiety towards the meal or, or what's happening, but she'll have some of these episodes where like, she just breathes really, it's like she breathes really heavy and, you know, mom is like, I just give her her time. I let her regroup and I don't introduce anything until that has resolved but with Rett syndrome, seizures are very, very common. However, sometimes they don't develop until a little bit later. I honestly am still kind of confused because so many of my little ones with Rett syndrome, like it appears they have all these signs of having seizures, but it's been described to me as this is the part of the regression. So like the sleep difficulties and some call them like the rat episodes and excuse me if I'm saying that wrong, but if there's regression neurologically, the sleep is going to be impacted and they have some episodes. I, one of the little ones I see her, her head is constantly moving. So it's something I've really had to get used to is in regards to like feeding her Because, I mean, this is just her movement. The girl can eat. She can eat. 
She can masticate really well, loves food, but like it was a, it's been a big adjustment for me because it's like, I'm trying to read her cues is very difficult because it's not a lot of that movement is involuntary, but I'm so cautious, especially early of like reading when she's telling me that she doesn't want anything else. With the seizures and the regression, I have had neurologists explain it as it's a neural storm, but it's not a seizure. Like that was the term that was used as well as transient altered awareness attacks. So it looks like a seizure, but it's not a seizure. But for all intents and purposes, it looks like a seizure. But when they're having it and they're on an EEG, there's nothing reading out. And because of the level of regression, the overall change in tones, the overall increase in movements. It's been a minute, but I've had a couple of little ones that have had Rett syndrome. All of them had renal issues, recurrent urinary tract infections. We're there when they change the baby's diapers, right? So you see the good, the bad, the ugly, what they had for dinner last night, and if there's corn in their stool, right? But the smell of the diapers, when they have Rett syndrome, sometimes it's very acrid. As a mom, I can tell you when they have a virus in their vomit versus when it's just a soured stomach because it's a very sharp smell. And I can tell what's going on with the boys, but that's what that urine smells like. I remember like another little one I have, like when she gets really frustrated, it's like she holds her breath. And there would be moments where like, I remember distinctly, it's like she didn't remember, like she couldn't initiate an exhale she like reached out for me. Like, I do not know how to breathe right now, which I'm, I'm assuming like they say the irregularities in breathing. I mean, I'm sure that that definitely comes with it. And I think the thing with rat syndrome that is difficult is that they can be typically developing until 18 months old. So your child is progressing and communicating and eating and engaging. And then the regression starts and that's, devastating for for any family. I did want to hit up Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic has a beautiful explanation on the different specific stages for Rett syndrome. The first one is the early onset, just like you were describing subtle changes, but mostly look typically developing up to 18 months. Stage two, just like you were describing, is the rapid deterioration, and they timeline that between one to four years of age. Stage three is a plateau, typically correlates between two to 10. So please know that there's an overlap here. And in the third of the fourth stage, that's typically when they see the seizures start. And then the late stage typically happens after or around age 10 is the late motor deterioration, scoliosis. But they don't all reach level four. They don't all reach level four because unfortunately, they often succumb to this. The prognosis for this isn't great. Personally, I lost one little girl who had Rett syndrome. She passed away in her sleep, but she had a very severe presentation. She was essentially almost a quadriplegic for lack of a better description. We we had volitional head movement, volitional eye movement. When I first started, she could bring her hands together and would hold on to her bottles of sweet tea. You know you're an SLP in the South when you're guzzling down sweet tea from a bottle at two years. It was hot summer day. That's exactly how mom explained it. She's not wrong. For a lot of these kiddos, like the goal is to then maintain skills that they have. One little girl I see has was on thick and liquid and then sent would her most recent swallow study revealed improvements in her swallow, which is phenomenal practice. It becomes a lot more of not what your goal is, but what family's goal is. Because there are some families that mealtime's huge. I want to feed my child. They love to eat. A lot of my kiddos with rat syndrome at least the ones that I see, like love to eat. So how do you advocate for that quality of life while also keeping them safe? Granted, we are not the aspiration police. I think people think we're the aspiration police, but we're not. And it's important to, that's when you have to work so closely with the team and say, hey, I get it. 
we have an increased risk of aspiration. Maybe we aspirated thins in the swallow study. This patient, maybe they only take thins because they hate the thickened liquid. Don't blame them. And this is one of the soul relationship bonding moments that mom has with child. That's also your job to advocate for. Yes, you may be the one that knows the aspiration risks risks the most and knows swallowing the best, but it's working with your own clinical judgment and knowing quality of life. And in that moment, that's when I would work with the team very closely and say, okay, let's monitor pulmonology closely. Let's give them a limit of volume. Let's work really closely and give strategies to family because if this is important to family, this is important to their plan of care. It's it's no longer what's developmentally appropriate. Let's work to get them there. It's not what's going to happen with these patients. You said something last night when we were talking that was profound. And we were talking about the case and you were like, Michelle, the more of these complex patients I see every single day after all this time, the more liberal I am with my recommendations. And you are spot on. Me practicing years ago, if I heard there was one aspiration on a swallow study, I would have just said, all right, that's it, MPO, done. But the more that we learn about aspiration load, bacterial load, prandial, non-prandial, how much they're micro-aspirating, what their volitional cough is, all and big picture quality of life, all of those factors play in. This isn't to say don't trust the speech therapist that's doing the swallow study, but don't take a swallow study as a be-all end-all because everyone does swallow studies differently. Some people, they see aspiration right away, first couple swallows, move on to thickened. If it's the first swallow, I don't really count that. I would give them more of a chance. So that's when I try and call the speech therapist that's doing the swallow study prior to it to say what I'm looking for, what information I want. Because in reality, this study is supposed to give you information. This is not, here's my patient, do a swallow study and like you do whatever you want and tell me what to do with them. You've been working with them, so you know. And I mean, I've had a a couple kiddos recently on my caseload that have had no to minimal experience with PO ever. And what do you do? When you walk into an eval and they've never had food in their mouth. Yeah, they're scheduled for a swallow study in roughly six weeks. And the physician's like, well, we have to get them to accept something. And you're like, okay, all right, shoot, let's figure this out. But like three years ago, I would have been terrified and been like, I can't give them food until they have a swallow study. When you teach your child how to play baseball, do you like send them to the game without practice and make them hit a ball when it's flying at them? No, you let them swing for a little bit and figure it out. And you realize that a couple dips in the pacifier and some trace tastes of puree for acceptance is is gonna be okay. Yes, I'm gonna call the physician and be like, hey, this is what I think is appropriate. This is what I'm gonna do. PO pleasure feeds until the swallow study, the kid loves it. That's great. But you also have to feel confident in your judgment and There's one article that we talked about a while back, but I just want to bring it back up because we talked about this before on how there's so much more information about aspiration pneumonia risks with adults and what factors to look for and how to make these clinical judgments because adults can make a lot more of their own opinions than little tiny humans that can't communicate can. So they can say, I'm going to eat the steak anyways, or I don't want to drink this disgusting thickened wine because I like wine at night and that's, I'm not going to do it. So this is also a call to action of we need more ways to obtain. And whether it's from the parent, like I have parents that I will make recommendations and they're like, you know what? I want to give him thin liquids. This is what I want to try. I don't want to, this is what he's going to drink for them to be able to make that decision. And then you to be able to give them recommendations within that framework of that being an aspiration risk. But also, we need more information on risk factors for pediatric aspiration pneumonia. There's one study, it's observations from a pediatric dysphagia clinic, characteristics of children at risk of aspiration pneumonia. In 2018, the American Laryngological, Rhinological, and Odological Society, they looked at 88 children, so not that small of a group of 
dysphagia and risk factors for aspiration pneumonia. And they had some pretty interesting findings that prematurity didn't necessarily equate to a higher risk of aspiration pneumonia. They also found that I know laryngeal abnormalities were a big risk factor for aspiration pneumonia. Enteral feeding was not a risk factor for aspiration pneumonia. And also they found that in this study, they found tracheostomy didn't increase the risk of aspiration that there was another study that had a strong correlation. So that's something that I think they're going to do more research on, but it was really cardiac events, laryngeal abnormalities that had some of the biggest risk of aspiration pneumonia. And it was interesting because like choking, DSATs, cough, and apnea were not found to be risk factors, which they equated to maybe that being that protective mechanism. So if children are showing those signs, maybe they are more so protecting themselves from aspiration, but but it could just be that. And so like you think cardiac and you think, I guess the anatomical, like that makes sense because they can't, no matter what a child does, they can't always compensate for that. But there's so much more research that needs to be had, but that's to say we have all these preconceived notions about all these children that are at risk for aspiration pneumonia. There are some children with cerebral palsy that you get them in a swallow study and it is residue all over their pharynx and they haven't had any respiratory issues for years. I'm not saying just let kids with CP do whatever they want, but you never know what you're going to see or what you're going to find. And so, but that's why we do this. So we don't inhibit or limit the diet. Also, On the flip side, you have some that you're confident are not, they're not aspirating, that the diet recommendations are going swimmingly, and then you go in and it is absolutely abysmal. Okay, Rhett, R-E-T-T syndrome.org. It is a fantastic website. And I know firsthand that if you are newly diagnosed or if your little one is newly diagnosed with Rett syndrome, you can reach out to them and they send you a how-to guide or a tools for entering this new season and stage of your life. Let me tell you something, Rett syndrome mamas, they're like some of the strongest women I've ever met. Yes! Yes. I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but... I stay in touch with the one that passed away a couple years ago and the mama just had a new baby and... My goodness, they're spitting image of each other. And it's just like whenever we see each other on social media, I'm like, oh, I volunteer for snugs. I will come snuggle. Okay. All right. Big picture with a little one with Rett syndrome. My biggest concern is has historically been every patient that I have worked with, and it's quite a few, they have ended up needing a feeding tube for quantity, not necessarily Quality, pleasure life feeding, yes, but specifically for quantity of liquids due to dehydration risk factors as kidney renal function takes precedence. One was missing a kidney when we finally got a diagnosis. That little girl was very interesting. She had a stroke in utero. It was a grade two bleed that wasn't diagnosed until later, but it still didn't account for all of the symptoms that we were seeing. And then when we finally pushed, pushed, pushed and got her to a geneticist after recurrent UTIs, they found out she had Rett syndrome, then sent her to a urologist and a nephrologist because her blood pressures went up simultaneously. And that's when they found out she was only born with one kidney. So it was just a very comorbidities, comorbidities. Okay. All right. Let's go to infantile spasms, West syndrome. Okay. So this disease and disorder is also known as the catastrophic seizure disorder. It is absolutely horrendous. I just picked up a little one that has this. The prevalence is supposed to be something akin to one in 80 or one in 90,000. And I've had almost 10 kids that have had this. This is a disease that's very, very near and dear to my heart because one of the ladies that end up nannying for us, her grandson had infantile spasms. So it was originally called West syndrome by Dr. Jonathan West out of London in the 1800s. And he was a physician in London in the 1800s. It was not a glamorous time to be a doctor. And he lost a son to infantile spasms and then eventually had his second son committed because 
He survived the infantile spasms and then had lifelong developmental delays, disorders, and ongoing seizures. So the syndrome was named after him, which, and all of his research because of the love of his children. So the fact that this stems from a place of love just brings joy to my heart. So infantile spasms, with this, the children typically look typically developing. They normally, the first three or four months of life, everything is going along swimmingly. Normally, I think the word is idiopathic. There's no known causal factor for it. But something happens around month four where they start having tiny drop seizures or tiny tight stiffening of a arm, a limb. But the drops, they kind of look something akin to this, right? And then they start clustering and these can cluster and they only last a second or two. It doesn't on the surface look like it's causing that much damage. But when they start clustering, they can have upwards of two to 300 at one successive moment in time. And it is absolutely debilitating. Unfortunately, the typical treatment methodology for infantile spasms in America, let me preface this, they're doing everything they can just to stop the seizures and the spasms. So typically they start with ACTH, prednisone, and steroids. Um, so they just pump these infants full of steroids. So one mom explained it. She was like, I feel like my baby is on roid rage because they're just so angry like all the time. What is the steroid meant to do? It's supposed to stop the spasms. That's what we do here in the States, but it typically doesn't work so great. So then they bring on like the second line medications and one of the worst ones, Omvisabral. Can't Omvi cause blindness? The side effect is a cortical vision impairment. It's not that it eats away at the eye. It's that it actually deteriorates along the optic nerve. And for one of my patients, that was the pharmaceutical approach that actually stopped their infantile spasms. So what they do is they only give them two-week, six-week, two-month window. It's a very tight timeline of this is all that you're going to have to try this. If this doesn't stop the spasms, then we have to pull you off of it. And what field of vision is lost while you're on this medication then we can't get it back. So for lack of a better phrase, if it works, it'll stop the spasms, which will stop the neural damage, but it could cause your child to go permanently blind cortically, which that is a horrendous life decision for any parent to have to make, right? I have had patients that have been put on OMFI and it's never said to them that it can cause any medication. I feel like the neurologist is going to give you is going to have all these side effects. So like to them, what is one versus the other, but also cortical vision impairment. I feel like, and there's an episode with Dr. Carol Page that she talks about cortical vision impairment, but the fact that most people don't even know that an ophthalmologist versus a neuro-ophthalmologist are two different things. And I've had so many patients that have come in and said, we've gone to ophthalmology and they said their eyesight is great. Yeah. Their eye is their brain processing what they're seeing. And I mean, you experience the world with all of your senses, but vision is how we experience so much of our world. And if that's taken or you have a cortical vision impairment, it can alter from day to day. It can alter from hour to hour. Like with any patient that has like a very significant diagnosis, don't forget about vision because it can impact so many different things and don't if a patient says to you, we've already seen the eye doctor, make sure to ask them, did you see ophthalmology or neuro-ophthalmology? Because it's very different. Just because your eye is seeing it doesn't mean your brain is processing it. No, perfect. Yes, thank you. If OMFI doesn't work, normally they throw like a cluster of meds at you. One of the next lines of medicines is Dilantin. And Dilantin is a seizure medication. One, please go and read Drugs and Dysphagia. That is a fantastic book. If you if you don't buy it because it's going up in price because it hasn't been in print, then um, please make sure when you get a patient with a new medication that you actually look at all those outlier cause and effects. But Dilantin actually is known for causing gingival hyperplasia, which is an overgrowth of your gum tissue, which if you think about it, 
normally by now in the chronological swing of things, the child is six to 10 or 12 months of age and we have teeth erupting. So imagine your gums swelling up because it looks like they're being attacked by bees, the red swollen inflamed. You have a tooth erupting in the middle of this, which causes gums to swell up and teeth. They don't tell you about this in the parenting books, y'all. A tooth pops through the gums and then the gums go, oh no, we're swollen and irritated. They swell over, cover the tooth. And then it's like this awful saga for like two or three days until the tooth finally comes through. And any mother that has survived double ear infections, a sinus infection of her own and teething, you friend, win all the gold stars. Well, the amount of times I hear and like I'm not a mother. So the amount of times I come in and, and I'm, they're like, I think he's teething. And I'm always like, okay, is every child teething? Is this a big deal? But I guess maybe I'm just being ignorant. And it really is just. Teething is like, it's like purgatory. It never ends. And you're just like, when are we going to get through this? Okay. All right. So you've got gingival hypoplasia going on when normally you're still trying to get a bottle or breast and having an accurate, competent, safe suck or swallow. And it's painful for these kids. Some of the other side effects of the medications, mucositis, xerostoma, oral tissue breakdown, also lethargy and or irritability. And then we're trying to get them to get the food in. Now, if steroids don't cut it, then they normally start in with the ketogenic diet. Okay. Ketogenic diet, folks, if you are listening, we do not run point on the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is first and foremost run by the registered dietitian in conjunction with the neurologist. Our job is to say safety of viscosity, safety for positioning for PO intake. The ketogenic diet, basically, there's a really good quote from Emory, but it talks about basically it rebooting the brain. The ketogenic diet reboots the brain. This is not to help everybody lose weight because the side effects of the ketogenic diet are renal failure, gallbladder, gallstones, a whole host of issues in their own right. The only thing that I think about too is like I had a patient that had neuroblastoma when I had to, speaking of progressive disorders, when I was in the hospital and I just remember going in and working with him and they were like, he cannot have sugar. Like he cannot have Gatorade zero. We could try with Gatorade zero, but the way it was explained to me by the neurologist who was phenomenal was like sugar. It fuels your brain. And I'm not a neurologist, obviously, but like, I never thought about how sugar and carbs have such an impact on like the functioning of your brain and, and activating it. But if your brain is having seizures because it's being overactivated, then it makes sense that sugar would then cause more of those problems, complete layman's terms, but like. That's accurate. Yes. Okay. So. With the ketogenic diet, they have to maintain, it's a fat to carb ratio, high fat, low carb diet. There's either a four to one ratio or a three to one ratio. The four to one is a harder on the GI tract, but it's better at controlling and stopping the spasms. The three to one, it takes a little bit longer. Some of these children have to be on this diet for a couple of months to a couple of years. Some children I worked with a little girl who had Down syndrome, ETOH abuse in utero, illicit drug abuse in utero, had an athetoid CP diagnosis as well as infantile spasms. And she had progressed past infantile spasms and then was diagnosed with Lennox-Gastaut and she was still on ketogenic. As soon as they tried to take her off ketogenic, like previously, like they came rushing back. So if you go to other countries, the ketogenic diet is done first. They're starting to do research on Epidolox, which is a specific type of CBD oil for Dravat syndrome. It's been cleared for two and above. They're introducing it with younger populations, and infantile spasms is supposed to be one of those because when it works, it works better than all of the other stuff that we just talked about with significantly reduced complications. Infantile spasms, a lot of the research does support Placing a G-tube because of the severity of the oropharyngeal and esophageal dysphagia because of the damage caused by the seizures, it's just not safe. As well as if they're placed on the ketogenic diet, these patients need 
a safe means to get in that. Receive the diet. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Some 10 to 15% of patients with infantile spasms will succumb to the disease disorder. Most of these patients evolve into 50% or more evolve into having Linux gasto, which you'll see on IEPs and IFSPs as LGS syndrome. And it's where you have four distinct seizure disorders. And then the rest, like only 5 to 10%, just for some reason, walk away completely rebooted, no ongoing seizure disorders, and then the rest evolve into just a general form of epilepsy, but it's not as complex as the LGS. Okay, so epilepsyfoundation.com and Epilepsy Awareness have amazing resources on all of the above. I do know that there is a fantastic infantile spasms and LGS Facebook support group for parents because I have had a lot of parents that have found, I mean, even down to recommendations on where can we find shampoo and conditioner that don't have certain types of additives in them because those additives can actually throw off the ketogenic diet. But as the speech pathologist, remember You cannot say, hey, you're 15 months old. Let's try a puff because guess what? A puff is a carb. You can't do that. I had a patient that happened to a patient when I was pregnant and on bed rest with Theodore and the mom called me and I was like, no, 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 no. If it is not specifically on the diet as outlined by the registered dietitian. Oh, and then the other really important piece is these parents have to collect their urine in like cotton balls and the diapers and then do like the litmus test of them to ensure that they are actually within the correct ketone levels. I had one dad make a joke off the cuff about how he had all of these scales in his house for measuring the grams of like coconut oil he needed to add to the formula. He's like, hmm, I look like I could open my own illicit pharmaceutical company. And I was like, oh my Lord, (laughs) but you're in their home. You just roll with it. Oh, the joys of home. (laughs) Okay. Leishnihan syndrome, it's a buildup of uric acid in the body, and it predominantly impacts little boys. There is a killer website, rarediseases.org, but it talks about kidney stone, bladder stones, and it's moderate to severe cognitive disabilities. And when Aaron was talking about self-mutilation, it was it's a lot of these patients, when their permanent teeth come in, they actually end up going in and actually removing their permanent teeth because they will just take off chunks of their skin, and it is pretty aggressive. A lot of kidney stones, I just remember that was one of the biggest issues that the brothers that I saw had, and they say that like neurologic symptoms begin around before the age of one. They have like involuntary movements of their arms. They have the repetitive movements like flexing their fingers, their shoulders, their face grimaces. It's similar in that they, like there were infants that used to sit upright, but they may lose that ability. The brothers that I saw, they couldn't sit up. They were either lying down or they were in their chairs, which with a diagnosis like this, this is when, you know, we talk a lot about how Typical development, you're going to want a child to sit up before they work on solids. But if you have a child that's not going to sit up, you have to work with your OT and your PT to make sure that you get good positioning for them, a great chair, good support, because you can combat that and give them the core strength and the support to be able to have those fine motor oral sensory oral motor movements and an improved swallow if you get them in the good positioning. So that's where that mindset of I'm not going to wait until that developmental milestone of sitting up. We're probably not going to get there. How do I work on these skills and feeding with the help of good positioning? And so that's just another aspect of that. Very increased muscle tone is huge. And a lot of these kiddos, like very like spastic movements, it's like, It's difficult to move them a lot of times, which can impact feeding, obviously, because if they're hypertonic, gross, they're going to be hypertonic everywhere else. And self-mutilation a lot of times doesn't start until they're like two to three years old. It can start around the first year, but usually it's later 
there's some head banging. Sometimes they do feel the pain usually. Like I don't mean for that to be like a negative, but it's it's not that they're not feeling it. I had one mom explain it to me. And if you look up your patients that have Leshnai hand, they have a very distinct their overall craniofacial structure and bodies have a very distinct, almost swollen appearance to them. That does not do the description justice. But the mom was frustrated. She was like, he will chew on his own hand until it's raw, but he will not chew on the food when I present it to him. Often for these patients, you do end up having to do pureed presentations. And to your credit, when you were talking about the equipment, these children, sometimes they live until teen years. And so they are genetically, I mean, you can have six foot tall if they come from um, very tall people, they can be very large patients. And so when you're looking at your durable medical equipment, did y'all know that as the speech pathologist on the team, we're allowed to write orders for DMEs. I, when I first started out, thought it was just an OTPT piece, but it's not. A speech pathologist can write an order for adaptive equipment. And often they do lose the ability to walk. I've seen a really cool gait trainer where they sit in it and it had wheels. And so like you have to start thinking about decubitus ulcers and tissue breakdown and how that plays in. Because if you start having tissue breakdown on your katukis, are you going to want to eat if you have, if your south side is hurting? These are the patients that your job is also to advocate for quality of life. And I get on the soapbox a lot, but it was these brothers specifically, I remember that like their breathing, like you, you know, we talk about the sound of strider, like it, this was tracheomalacia, like, uh, uh, sorry for that. But like, that was how they sounded when they were breathing. And I sent them to ENT and this wasn't an ENT I typically work with. And he was like, I don't hear anything. There's no problem. And a lot of times because these patients are, have so many deficits, they see so many specialists, it, it just gets equated to the disease when in reality, like these patients still deserve to have the best quality of life that they possibly can. And so our job, yes, we're talking about feeding and swelling, but our job as communication specialists is also to listen to their communication, advocate for what they're telling us because we have the, you know, I love working with OTs because I learned so much about regulation and sensory. Granted, OTs don't own sensory. We like give it to them, but like we also can deal with sensory. But we have the ability to understand that cognition and communication and couple that with the feeding to then be able to to advocate for them. And so A, don't take the first specialist no as an answer because you deserve a second opinion. And I have to remember, even specialists don't always deal with these types of patients. So just because they're an ENT doesn't mean that they're an ENT that understands patients with progressive disorders or neurodevelopmental disorders. Just because we're a speech therapist doesn't mean that we feel comfortable with feeding or literacy or like it's similar in that way. And you have to remember that like just getting them to one specialist and that specialist saying, I don't see anything doesn't mean that there's not anything there. And our job is to advocate for quality of life within the framework of communication and feeding. And that's important to think about. And it's a different framework, but it's an adjustment. Aspen. I highly recommend everybody check out Aspen. I'm going to put this information in the chat box. They are the American Society for the Parental Nourishment. We all need to come familiar with the formulas that are available that insurance covers, especially the plant-based formula and the alternate non-synthetic ones, as well as the difference between hydrolysis hydrolysized. I can never say that word. Hydrolyzed? Yes. Thank you. Are the ones that are elemental because some of our patients that have progressive diseases, as the disease takes its course, they cannot handle 
the high-level complexities of the formula, and they need it broken down for their gut. And we have to recognize the signs and symptoms in the progression of the disease or the impact of the medications. So we need to know our formulas. And two, we also need to make sure that we are staying abreast of current medications as well as changes in novel treatments for these diseases. Because a lot of times these diseases have ongoing clinical research. And that's one of the reasons why we go back to NIH so much is because when they talk about new medications that are coming out, like Epidolox, that could be helpful. Bottom line, stay on top of your medications, your formulas, and be tuned in and advocate for the patient. All right. We appreciate y'all staying with us. Happy Speech Pathology Day. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Babies.